Hey folks, it's me, Ben Blacker, the creator and host of the Writers Panel. Thanks for listening. We are in week seven of the WGA strike, um, and we're going to do things a little differently here on the podcast for the next few months, or probably as long as the strike lasts. And it's something I've been wanting to do for a long time, and that's to have uh, shorter and really focused conversations with some of my favorite guests, as well as some new guests. Um, And I found myself on the picket line with today's guest, Mark Bernardin, um, early on uh, during the strike. I think it was even the first week. And we were talking about how I wanted to do this. And Mark suggested, make them about craft, uh, as you'll hear him talk about at the beginning of today's conversation. That's the stuff we have time for, is to write for ourselves, to write new material. Um, And so Mark uh, kicks us off today with a conversation about world building, which turned out to be incredibly inspirational and and kind of moving. Um, it's always a pleasure to talk to Mark Bernardin. He knows his stuff. Uh, he thinks about craft and this business uh, in such a smart way. Um, it's truly, I'm, I'm lucky to know him and uh, luckier still to have him on the podcast today. There's some stuff coming up. Please join the Substack benblacker.substack.com. It's called Rewriting because it's about writing. Very clever. Um, I I posted last week what I think is one of my all-time favorite newsletters and maybe one of the best things I've written, which is all about second acts and how to tackle writing the second act of your pilot, your screenplay, whatever it is. Uh, The middle part where things get really hard. Um, I'm facing it myself on a couple of projects, and so I wanted to explore the ways that, you know, smart people have suggested we go about second acts. So head over to benblacker.substack.com, check out that post, and and please support both the newsletter and this podcast by becoming a paid subscriber. It really means a lot to me, especially right now. Additionally, if you would like to see what something I wrote actually looks like, um, <laughs> Acker and I have a Thrilling Adventure Hour show coming up on June 24th at the Bourbon Room in Hollywood. Um, It's going to be a really fun show. It stars all of our regular stars, Paul F. Tompkins, Paget Brewster, Busy Phillips, uh, and the Work Juice players, as well as some really awesome guest stars who I'm so excited to have be a part of the show. Um, I guess they're a surprise. We'll keep them a surprise for now. But You're going to know them and love them. Um, It's going to be really cool. So that is, uh, again, June 24th. We have 7 p.m. show and a 9 p.m. show. Please come to either or both. We wrote new scripts for each show. And honestly, I think they're really funny. We got to work with some really funny writers on some of them. Um, I'm excited for it. Go to bourbonroomhollywood.com. Look for the pictures of Paget in her red dress to buy tickets for those. I would love to see some folks who listen to the podcast out there. That would be real cool. All right. As always, thank you for listening. Um, We'll we'll be back in a couple of weeks with some more craft-centered conversations. And you can always find those conversations and talk to me over at benblacker.substack.com. Thanks so much. They write, they talk, and talk about what they write. Tune in tonight or whenever the time is right. It's the Writer's Panel with Ben Blacker. And it's starting now. Oh, yeah.
Mark, this was your idea. I know. I'm sorry. <laughs> when we were, it was like the first week of picketing. We were walking the line together. I think so. Yeah. Warner Brothers. And uh, I was like, I don't know what to do with the podcast during the strike because I don't want people promoting their stuff and nobody wants to be promoting their stuff anyway. Um, and you said craft conversations, specific conversations about craft. Yeah. I mean, the idea being that, you know, the thing that we can do while we're striking is we can write for ourselves. Can't write for anybody else. We cannot be employed, but you know, there's nothing stopping you from, from using your innate talent to conjure newness that did not exist in the world before. So maybe help people do that. Yeah. I think it's, and I think it's a great idea. And so we're going to do, uh, I think this is the first of a series of these, uh, you know, shorter conversations with great writers uh, on craft. And you opted, I said, what do you want to talk about? Anything you want. And true to form, you opted for world building. I did. I did. It is my favorite part of being in a writer's room is the, the sort of blue sky period, right? The first couple of weeks when you're, you know, maybe there's a pilot, maybe there isn't, maybe there's just a pitch, maybe there's a book that it's based on, whatever it is. But th those are the, what could this be if this could be anything? Sort of point in the, in the genesis of, of, a, of a television show. And, and part of that is defining, all right, well, where is it taking place? What are the boundaries of this world? What are the, what's the fabric of this universe? Is it terrestrial? Is it magical? Is it science fiction? Is it horror? What kind of horror? Like all of those things that go into building the framework through which your characters will sort of move. And yeah, like that's, that is always just the candy for me. It's like, oh, what if it's this? Oh, but okay, what if it's that? Oh, but no, wait, what if it's also all of these things? But then how do we make it all play nicely together? So before we get into some of like the how to's on this, I'm, you, you know, you've worked in a lot of rooms where you do do this, you know, we do this world building, whether it is a genre show or whether it isn't a genre show, but you've worked on a bunch of genre shows where you've gotten to be a part of this. What were some of the standouts in those rooms in that blue skying period? And like, what do you remember fondly about the, about putting, you know, creating the worlds of these shows? Yeah, I mean, working working on stuff like Castle Rock, you know, which wa was my my second TV show, but the first real big like, what is this thing going to be? Um, you know, and 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 it's figuring out. Okay, it's Stephen King, right? So, what are Stephen King worlds like? And it was always supposed to be this the the lost Stephen King book, as if somebody had found you know, a chest underneath a haunted house somewhere that happened to have a never before read Stephen King book that still sets um, its drama in the universe that you're familiar with. So what does that universe feel like? You know, what is it? What are the rules of it? How does Stephen King tell stories? How does he hide information? Does he hide information? Like all of those things. And so being able to sit with really smart people and just kind of everybody picked a couple of books, like, all right, you go off and read Needful Things, you go off and read this, you go off and read Tommy Knockers, you go read The Shining, and then we'll all kind of bring it back together and say, well, what, what are the tenets of the way he tells stories? What are the, what are the, the pillars that he likes to lean on? Um, and then how can we adjust and absorb that stuff for this particular drama, um, which was a hoot. Um, you know, I'm gonna use old timey words as much as I can. So it was a, it was a hoot. Um, you're sent from the past to instruct us in the future. <laughs> I am indeed. I'm, I'm the time traveling paladin. But that's that's neat. Like you, you, you sort of took in because you had this source material. You sort of took in all of the 
all, uh, material and then started setting boundaries kind of like what is allowed in this world or what is expected of this world. Yeah, I mean, boundaries, I think, you know, and part of that comes from a bit of a horror upbringing, not that I'm a person who writes horror, um, or even goes to see much current horror, because I'm also a bit of a wuss that way. But I grew up in the 80s, like I grew up in, you know, sort of John Carpenter, and, you know, yes, Stephen King, and Sam Raimi, and Tom Savini, and, and like those sort of classic horror filmmakers, and horror is a genre that very much requires rules, you know, because you have to tell the audience, um, here's what can happen in a world where everything feels like it could happen so that you're not, it's, it's the compact you make with the audience, right? Like here's, here's what can happen. Here's how we're going to like, Hey, so Freddy Krueger can go in and out of dreams. Can he also time travel? No, he can go in and out of dreams. Now, if the dream is you dreaming of the past, it can be time travel, but dreams are the mechanism by which he travels. It can't be like Greyhound bus because then that's a different story. And so it's figuring out how to, to, to establish those things that feel like rules, like the, the restrictions are as important as the everything is possible. Um, and then making sure that those restrictions feel coherent. You know, it's, it's the, you know, I remember reading, it must have been like Stan Lee's, like how to write comics the Marvel way or whatever it was. And it was always, you can add one magical thing, one science fictional thing, one, one other thing, but everything else should kind of play fair. Like the only thing that's crazy in this world is that Bruce Banner got, you know, you know, bombarded with gamma rays and is now the Hulk. But everything else is just kind of normal. You know, Peter Parker got bit by a spider and everything else is kind of normal. You know, so it's figuring out how you want to deviate from the world that we know it and then make sure that the rest of the world plays fair with that deviation. The world building, you know, when you have a room, uh, it's one thing. And that is, you know, that is like you say, like that blue sky period is so, so much fun because everyone's throwing out ideas. And ideally you have a showrunner who, you know, is able to is decisive and is like, yes, that works. And let's find another version of this and blah, blah, blah. Now, when we're on our own, <laughs> it becomes a larger endeavor. And, and I would imagine like this is where for you years of taking the stuff in comes into play, but also your own wild imagination. How do you start to, you know, when working on your own stuff, how do you start to world build? Um, I mean, it, it does sort of begin with, with a little bit of that. What's the, you know, it, it's all about character. It's always all about character um, because television specifically you know, requires you to have a character that people want to continue to tune in to see. Um, but then for me, it ends up being this weird synthesis of like, who's the character? And then what's the craziest world we can put this character in? Or what's the the the, the world that makes this character pop the most? Um, you know, I've, I've written things that be, that led with character where character was the first thing. I've written things where just the idea was first. Like I, I wrote this pilot, you know, at this point, like five or six years ago, um, called Neo-Africanus, which was set in a world that there had never been um, chattel slavery, the, the triangle trade, you know, the, the African continent had never been plundered for, uh, for its sort of mental acuity and the, the, you know, there was no slavery in this world as we know it. Um, and so the, the problem got to be, the joyous problem was, what does the world look like if that is never the thing? And it began this like years long mental exercise of just trying to like 
trace down like economic lines of impact and socio-political tectonic shifts and like what does America look like if it hadn't been what does Europe look like you know what what are the forces that could have yielded this particular event and you know how does history need to shift slightly to allow for this to, to be possible and I spent so long like I spent years just like thinking about it this and like a little afraid of it because it was so big you know, and then I, I started to realize that, um, and I and I started reading Game of Thrones, um, and seeing like the density of that world, but also the proclivity to just get lost in the details of that world sometimes. Um, and the metaphor that I that I came to was it's like driving down a, a dark highway, and your characters can only see as much of the world as the headlights reveal. You can know it all but the drama doesn't require it all. In fact, it shouldn't because that's too much for an audience to take in. So like the, where's the story going? What do the characters wanna do? That's how much of the world I need to understand. And as we take a right turn in story, that's how much of the world I need to re reveal. I can know it in my head, but trying to cram that into 60 pages of a script is impossible. This is, a, this is a mistake that so many, especially new writers tend to make because we're excited to dive in. Like we want to show you all the parts of this clever world that we've come up with, um, but it doesn't all go on the page. You'll feel it if you've done the work, but it doesn't all go on the page. Yeah, I mean, the, the, the joy of that stuff is, is in the invention, of course. And then if you're, if you're lucky enough to, to get to pitch that idea, you will not ever be flummoxed by a question a person can ask because you have an answer for it because you've done all that work. And I feel like that when the world building isn't quite as rigorous, the executives can tell because they'll ask you a question and you're like, oh, I don't know about that or haven't thought about that yet, which is always a valid thing to be like, listen, that's an excellent question. Uh, I haven't cracked it yet, but uh, but it's on my list. <laughs> no, when you buy this show and give me a room, <laughs> first, it's job one. It's for all of us to figure this out. But it is more and more that like we do have to have this stuff figured out, but even before the pitch. Yeah, like you, you kind of have to know and do that thinking. But but the 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 careful dissemination of information is probably the the job one of writing anything, right? Like how much am I telling you, and when am I telling it to you? And resisting the temptation to just throw it all in your pilot is 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 uh, is probably a bad idea. And Game of Thrones is also very instructive in that regard. Like how much of that world do you see, even in the first season, let alone the pilot? And it's not as much as there is for sure, but people will refer to things like across the narrow sea and what's happening over in Dorne and Easteros versus Westeros and beyond the wall and all that stuff. Like you know that there's that there, the work had been done, but it gets to be just teases as opposed to the meat of the meal. Yeah. On this uh, alternate history script that you wrote, which I don't know why we're not in season eight of this show. This is incredible. Um, what was your way in? Was it playing the the game of what if, or was it specifically a character or, or a story that you wanted to tell? Um, it started very much as what if, because I am also that comic book nerd who who lives in the, in the what ifs of it all. And so it's like, what if there was no slavery, you know? and and, you know, it, it started from an emotional place for me because, you know, at the time, you know, my son, who's now going to be 19, was like 11 and came home from school and was like, I don't think I want to be black. I was like, oh, OK, let's talk about this now. 
Um, and I said, well, why not? He says, well, because of slavery. And I'm like, oh, well, yeah, no, that sucked for sure. Nobody, nobody liked it. Uh, nobody wanted it. Um, but it's, you know, not going to happen again. Maybe, hopefully, knock on wood, never can tell. But, uh, but you know, all signs are pointing to not a repeatable offense. Um, and then he just bounded off like an 11 year old does and goes to do whatever he goes to do. And that leaves me with this like crippling moral, like, oh my God. <laughs> and then the idea being like, is there is there a world in which that didn't have to be part of that story? Is there a narrative where that doesn't have to be, you know, a story that, you know, a, a person of color needs to tell their children? Um, and then that began the kind of like pulling at that thread of like, all right, well, what if it would, when would it have to have changed? And then what does it look like now? You know, and it, and, and it, for me, it was never Wakanda because that always felt fantastical. Um, but it was always like, no, it's a first world nation. Like it's, it's as robust and, and, and energetic and economically viable and scientifically literate as any European nation, as any Asian nation, as America is. Um, with its own problems, you know, because it's a, it's in this conception, it's a closed nation. It's got a non-porous border. So what happens when you continue to look inward as opposed to outward? You know, where does stagnation come in? Where does lack of innovation happen? What happens if the only people you talk to are yourself? Um, you know, and so that just became this, this world that I would kind of dip into every couple of months in between gigs, in between whatever, in between jobs, and just kind of um, tease it out. And then I remember getting laid off from, I think it was Playboy at the time, um, which is, you know, a topic for another podcast. Um, <laughs> but it was, it was, that was the double down. That was the, I, if, if I'm, I'm not getting staffed, I'm not happy about it. I haven't broken through. I haven't crossed over yet. Um, I'm going to write one last thing. And if this doesn't do the thing, then I'll just be a journalist and I'll be happy about it. I'll just, I'll, and, I, and I'll, I'll put away these childish dreams <laughs> and continue to be a grown ass person who pays for mortgages and stuff. And that happened to be the one that, that clicked. Like that's the one that got me the Castle Rock job. That's the one that got me the representation. That's the one that did all of the things that I, that I hoped it would do. Um, I don't think it happened to be the one. I mean, it, it feels like this, there's a reason this was the one like that this came from a place where, you know, this was the story you had to tell. I mean, it was it was very much that, you know, and, and also being able to the narrative behind it was strong. And this was also like a couple of years before Black Panther. Um, and so but everybody knew it was coming. Like, so it was it was the like, all right, are we going to try to this? Are we going to are we going to wait till it comes out and blows up like it? It had just enough, you know, environmental heat that it allowed the conditions were right for that to work. Um, but so that those lessons though, of, of like figuring out the world, of figuring out the way it works, of figuring out the politics of that world um, are things that, that are applicable to just straight up genre stuff. You know, I wrote another pilot that had magic in it and then figuring out the laws and the rules of that magic. And I mean, cause it's easy, like he's got a magic wand and stuff, whatever. I'm like, well, but it's not fun because it, like power should come with a cost. You know, like that's the other, the great Marvel comics lesson was that with great power comes great responsibility or great personal cost. Um, and so how can you create a magic system that that lets you do the wonder and gives you the eye candy of that 
but still comes with a character penalty for using it. So it's also D&D, right? Like I, I cast this mighty spell and now I'm exhausted for four rounds of battle where I'm the wizard that needs to be protected or whatever that is. And so it's finding out the thing that the, the glimmer that you want to have in the world and then what's the ramifications for that glimmer existing. Is it personal? Is it physical? Is it emotional? Is it mental? Is it economical? Um, whatever that is. But that, to me, that gives you the fabric of it, right? Like that gives you the texture of it, you know, that these are real people doing things that seem fantastical. Yeah. Is there, I remember being uh, in a writer's room with Ben Edlund, who is so good at this stuff, uh, where like we used to talk about it, like he had this many sided die that he had you know, a piece of lore on one side and he could zoom it way out and start to turn that die around and look at the other facets of it and say, okay, if this, then this. Now, my brain does not work that way. <laughs> you know, I tend to write from a very character-based place and a very emotional-based place. And so world building can be a little hard for me and, and coming up with those rules. Are there tricks? Are there ways in that, you know, you have found or have seen work over the years? Um, I, I, I don't know if I've encountered too many shortcuts. Um, when, I've, when I've seen it done incredibly well, like I was on Carnival Row with Travis Beecham, um, who uh, Carnival Row was his first script out of college. It landed on the very first blacklist. It got him gigs that would then lead on to stuff like Pacific Rim and, you know, what have you. But he's been living with that world for 20 some odd years. And there's no question you can ask him about it that he doesn't have an answer for. I remember being in the room and, uh, and we were having this conversation. We had a, a nautical journey for these characters to go on. And I was like, hey, Travis, if they're going to get from the, the Berg to this place, how long of a boat journey is that? And he's like, five days. I'm like, could it be three days? Three days would be better for the story. He's like, five days. <laughs> I was like, Okay, Travis, five days. But he's also the guy who, when you've got a character who's like the fairy poet laureate um, of this particular world, he wrote her book of fairy poetry. Like, wow. I just, okay, I get it. This is a real place to him. It's 100% a real place. You know, he, he walked me through the religious evolution of a thousand years of history and complete with like, here's where the Reformation broke off from this and here's and like names for everything. And it was astonishing to me. I don't think anybody needs to do that level unless you're living in it for 20 years and can't let it go. Um, but, you know, I think that 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 world building, there's there's the like the high world building of like, Lord of the Rings, you know, and then there's the world building of like Blade, where it's like Lord of the Rings, it's it's whole cloth, you know, you're you're inspired by, as Tolkien, you know, said, like I'm I'm inspired by World War One. I. I was inspired by the, these good lads like going off to war and you know, just leaving behind the green fields of whatever part of Britain they lived in off to trudge through the, the dead marshes of of uh, trench warfare. Or it's like Blade, but what if they were vampires? And it's also New York, <laughs> you know, like, or LA, whatever that, that particular city was supposed to be. But then you start saying, right, if there are vampires, is there a vampire economy? You know, how do these vampires stay hidden? You know, how do vampires have fun? You know, and you're looking for those moments where the real world can cross with that particular fantasy world to then illuminate the aspects of both that are different. 
you know, and and I, I picked Blade because A, it's a pretty good movie and B, responsible for the superhero world we live in. But that first scene of Blade where they go, you follow Tracy Lords like down through the basement in this sort of Goodfellas shot where they're going down and then they find like the, the rave club that's buried in the meatpacking district of this particular, you know, city block. And then it's a bloodbath where they have blood coming out of the, the the fountains, the sprinklers from the roof, because it's vampires dancing and drinking all at once. And it's like, that's amazing, because now I see the world. Now I see how it's built to accommodate vampires and built to accommodate young vampires, you know, like it's all a youth culture. Like, all of that begins to inform how the rest of that story plays out. And so finding those inflection points, like what is different? What is the same? how is it different? And then how does that difference impact the characters um, and impact how they're going to go about doing what they're doing? Um, like that, that's, that's as close to a shortcut, I think, that I, can, that I can think of, especially for stuff that is, you know, our world, but just to the left of it, you know, where you're not completely inventing newness. Like Star Wars, that kind of world building is just invention. It's just I mean, granted, inspired by serials and inspired by samurai tales and inspired by, you know, old Metropolis, Fritz Lang's Metropolis, all of those things put in a blender and then we give you a world that's kind of the, the output of that. But even that is also still character. It is still, here's this farm boy <laughs> who just wants to leave the farm. Yeah. What is, what is the story of my hero in this, which is also Lord of the Rings and all this stuff is sort of around him right totally totally it's you know it's that old thing like there are only 32 stories in the world and it's just a matter of figuring out how ways you can you can give people what they already know in a format that they've never seen it before you know and it's the temptation to use world building as window dressing you know is is always there but there's also ways to have the have the world building be part of the character story as well yeah i mean i think that's an important thing to remember is in the same way that we move through and interact with our world your character does too and so how do they inform that world and how does that world inform them yeah for sure for sure because otherwise it's just like you know kyle reese is a great character sarah connor is a great character but the world building helps to inform who those characters are it applies the pressure on those characters to reveal who they actually are um and so like and that is also very very simple it's like hey but what if ai goes horribly wrong you guys (laughs) (laughs) topical (laughs) you've also worked in some on some shows and in some properties where the worlds existed already you know i'm thinking of star trek uh have you worked on star wars too um i've written a darth vader comic book for marvel so, uh, so, so dealt a little bit with Lucasfilm licensing. In yeah. That so, so I, my question is behind those is like, how far in these existing worlds do you get to bend it? How far do you get to say, okay, I've loved this thing for 40 years. Mm-hmm. I know about this piece of your world. What if this, you know? I mean, it's, it's always worth trying, you know, and, and being surprised at what you can get away with. Um, you know, on the Star Wars thing specifically, like discovering what the canon uh, ranking is of force users, where it's like, I think Darth Vader should be able to do this. And then Lucasfilm say, he's not that powerful. It's like, what do you mean he's not? He's fucking Darth Vader. He can do everything. It's like, uh, uh, uh. 
He can't do that. Kylo Ren can do that, but he can't. So you're telling me Kylo Ren is more powerful than Darth Vader? I said, well, <laughs> according to the hidden scrolls that we keep in the basement, yes. You know, and so I think there's 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 always the the temptation to push it and either redefine a thing or establish a thing or discover something new. Um, and and it's it's like it's your job as a writer to try to do that, and it's their job as the licensor to maybe prohibit you or at the very least like put a little control on that and say, well, no, it's not gonna be X, but it could be Y. Um, and it's and it's always it's fun, but it's challenging dealing with legacy media like Star Wars or Star Trek or or even Jason Bourne and figuring out like, um, you know, how how does this operate? Who who is Treadstone? Who is Blackbriar? What is how did they create these agents? Like, is there was it just training? Was there like all of the things that you don't have to worry about when you're just making a movie suddenly become like, oh, I don't know. We never thought, okay, well, sure. Let's talk about this. How do sleeper agents actually work? What do they do when they're not sleeping? Do they have any memory? How do you trigger them? Does the trigger erase the old, you know, identity? Does it just add suddenly, you know, ninja skills in the middle of it? Like, and all of that stuff is, is a conversation. You know, and if it's and if it's done with with you know coming to it with a sense of not quite reverence but honoring what it is, then hopefully you'll find a partner um, in the state in in the case of Ludlum and Born with you know Paramount or Lucasfilm of people who are like yeah okay you know this doesn't break anything, um, so give it a try. Like if it feels right then we're okay with it. Yeah. And I'll say there, there, and I'll, I'll just mention this briefly because I think you will find it fun. Uh, when we were working on our Star Wars middle grade books, we had a meeting with Story Group and learning those, th- like what they say no to or what they say yes to or what they suggest, like is also opportunity. So like if you get to play with these toys, they know the stuff better than you ever would as a fan. And so we asked them two things and one was like, can we have a Yoda? And they're like, no. There are only two Yodas. We don't know what they are. Uh, or like no one no one knows what alien species they are. Like, all right, fine. We just wanted to know. Uh, but the other that planted a seed for us was learning about, and I forget, like it sort of came up naturally in conversation, but learning about how droids work. And the longer they exist without being reset, the more they develop personality. And we're like, wow, that's really neat. So and we had this character who's basically brother, his brother was a droid. And so they had, this guy, this droid had never been reset. So he had this distinct personality and it meant that we could have a threat in this book of this beloved, this character who's beloved by his brother being reset and he would forget his whole life before. And so like finding these sort of neat opportunities that exist in the lore, but have never have gone unexplored was a lot of fun for us. That's awesome. That's awesome. You know, and there's, there's a, there's a great old Orson Welles quote, which he may or may not have stolen from somebody else. I don't know, but it's like the enemy of art is the absence of restrictions, you know, like without some kind of cage, you don't get to push against those walls and find a different solution to your problem like if you could just do anything from the jump then like all right whatever but it's that like can't do this but like ooh, the, the, the butt's cool the butt works for me you know the butt 
it builds stakes, it builds, and it builds opportunities for your character to reveal something that makes them special. Like they've solved the problem that nobody else can solve. That's why they are the hero. That's why they're Neo. That's why they're Ellen Ripley. That's why they're, you know, Sarah Connor. Like, because they're restricted in so many ways, but yet they still do manage to triumph despite those restrictions. Yeah. Um, this is, I feel like we could talk about this all day and someday we will. Um, but like, this is really inspiring to me. This gets me excited to start like poking around and, and pushing at the, at the stuff I'm working on and digging deeper into the worlds of it. And, you know, not just the character of it because they are so related. They are, you know, and, and, and there's also something like one of my favorite movies of the last like 10 years was Mad Max Fury Road. You know, and and the thing that I took away from that movie, aside from, oh, my God, how come everybody isn't dead in every scene that I'm watching, is the the more complex the world is, the simpler the story kind of needs to be, because the brain can only absorb but so much data at a time. So like Michael Clayton requires a very simple world. It's our world. It's fine. And so you can have all of these reveals and character moments and twists and and tiny filigrees of depression and despair and whatever. But Mad Max Free Road is we're going there and then we're turning around and coming back here. <laughs> but the world is so just almost Rococo in its amount of detail and 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 delight. And I think that's that is a valuable lesson. Just remind remembering how much bandwidth the average viewer has um, for a 90 minute, 60 minute, 100 minute entertainment like too much is too much sometimes that's a great point i mean that's even lord of the rings right is like mm -hmm. we need to take this thing to this place that's yeah, the plot super simple <laughs> we get all this other stuff on the way yeah we're gonna walk for nine hours <laughs> i mean it's it's wizard of oz too like it's i think that's really it's so interesting um all right mark thank you so much um what, what are you going to watch? Uh, what are you excited to be watching right now? What big world buildy things have you uh, excited? Uh, I, uh, I, I've got on the, and I still refer to it as a TiVo, even though I, I also say, I tape the thing on my TiVo. Um, <laughs> uh, I know, The Lazarus Project, um, which is, uh, it's a British show that is currently airing on TNT um ed brubaker of all people told me about it like six months ago he's like this is great you need to watch it when it comes out i don't know how he got a hold of it ed brubaker has his own magical mystery ways but it's like it's time travel plus spies plus like deep personal um investment uh and i'm curious like i don't know what it is but it's like oh no we can we have limited time travel to, for you to go and save the world and then what that costs um and so like all right I'll dig into that. Let's see what that's all about. Um, time travel is a whole other conversation that we should have some time. I think it's really neat. Yeah. I mean, yeah. And I think you should get like, you know, Josh Friedman or, or, or Zach, Zach Stanis to come and talk about like the, the innate insanity of trying to conjure a legit, like satisfying time travel story or Terry Metalis, who's done it now yeah. twice. And done it well. Yeah. <laughs> and done it well. Like that's a dude who just lives and breathes time travel. Um, all right, Lazarus Project. We'll check it out. That sounds cool. Uh, we'll see you out on the line, man. Thanks, Ben. Thank Always you. good to talk.